welcome to Sky Team's People First with Morag Barrett. My guest this week is my friend and fellow member of the 100 Coaches, Ron Carucci. Ron is the co-founder and managing partner at Navalent and works with CEOs and executives pursuing transformational change for their organizations, leaders, and industries. He has a 30-year track record, but I have him here today to talk about his ninth book, which you can see behind him, his ninth book called To Be Honest. And I'm looking forward to learning more from you, Ron, during our conversation today, but welcome to People First. Mark, it's great to be with you. Thanks so much for having me. All right, so before we dive into honesty, I want you honestly to take a flashback journey to when you were at elementary school and the teacher says, Ron, what do you want to be when you grow up? And what was your answer way back when? Gosh, I think it probably, you know, I, I, there were so many answers to that question. I think I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to be an actor. Um, I think I wanted to be a futurist. You know, like I, I early on discovered, you know, um, Alvin Toffler. Uh, yeah. Most of my kids wanted to be baseball stars. And I just fell in love with Alvin, Alvin Toffler. You know, how bizarre and as a sixth grader, to, but I was so fascinated by the idea that someone, it was someone's job to predict the future. Well, I think uh, about the work that you do through Navalan and the influence that you have on the organization's teams and leaders, you're helping them to shape their future or at least take back control on their future. Well, I think that, you know, I finally figured out that, that Peter Drucker was right, right? You can't, the reason you can't predict the future is because you can change it. Mm. So, uh, I think what I what I did learn, I, I did dabble, and I did dabble in a few of those careers. I did think about going into pre med. I did spend some time in the arts, um, but ultimately found myself into a career where helping people shape their own story was far more fascinating to me than anything. Mm-hmm. And, and I never, I never, I mean, I bore easily, and I don't ever get bored with this. All right. Well, let's talk about boredom then, because you conducted a fifteen year longitudinal study for your latest book. To be honest. So you have to have staying power for a 15-year longitudinal study. Um, Was that your intent when you set out? Did you know it's going to take 15 years to collect the data? So we collected it anyway, right? So it's data we collect them at all the time. We're we're doing diagnostics on our clients all the time. So we have this 15 years of data. Um, What we have is also a great set of artificial intelligence capabilities in, in IBM Watson and some other great tools that can read that data and make meaning of it. Uh, and mm-hmm. so for our last book, Rising to Power, it was at the 10-year mark. We had 2,700 interviews. Now we're at the 3,200 uh, interview mark. And I was not trying to set out to write a book, but I was curious as to what was in that data, what was in that basket that we hadn't um, learned in the last study. <clears throat> and when the data came back and started to sort of show you the sort of the what they call the drill sites of where you can say, hey, there's some interesting things piling up over here that have some um, re- relevant and valid meaning around honesty and truth telling, I was fascinated because I think, you know, we're all tired of the Wells Fargo stories, the Toronto stories. The mm-hmm. I mean, we just, on some level, we, 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 we've, we've lost trust with institutions. We've lost trust with leaders, but we're tired of that. And we want something more. So you mentioned there two two headline stories, uh, the Wells Fargo with the fake bank accounts to hit their sales numbers and the Theranos, the, the, the blood testing thing. So we, we know the headline stories, but I'm curious, before we dive into, to be honest, what is dishonesty then? 
Well, gosh, it, it, takes, it takes many forms, right? It's not just out and out corruption, like those stories are extreme. It's, it's withholding the truth. It's embellishing an accomplishment. It's treating a colleague unfairly. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it's disadvantaging somebody with a privilege you have. Uh, it's, it's trying to win a conflict you shouldn't win uh, and making somebody else wrong to do it. It, it organizationally comes in many forms and the research revealed that honesty is not just, a, it's no longer enough not to lie. That today, because our experience of honesty has gone so far through the floor that our workplace's expectations of it have gone through the roof. And so today to be labeled as honest, you have to tell the truth, you know, um, be fair, justice, and serve a greater good purpose. You have to say the right thing, do the right thing, and say and do the right thing for the right reason, even when it's hard. Mm, I love that because that's a concept I share in my book, Cultivate, around being an ally. It's giving the feedback others need to hear, especially the tough feedback versus the feedback that they may want to hear. But also you talk about that and how important it is, but I've lost count of the number of companies. And you know who you are if you're listening and watching this podcast who have integrity as one of their corporate values. So are you saying that having integrity as a corporate value isn't enough? Well, in fact, the very first finding in our research would say that it's, it's actually not only not enough, it's dangerous. Ooh, say more. Turns out that, um, so we found, four, the data came back and helped us find four conditions under which we can predict whether or not people will tell the truth, behave fairly, and serve a greater good, or whether they will lie, cheat, and serve their own interests first. Um, and one of them is, in fact, what you say on your corporate values and what you say about yourself. So it's about having a clear identity that you live by. So be who you say you are. If your purpose statement, your mission statement, your value statements match your behaviors and, and the eyes of your employees and your customers, you're seen as embodying who you say you are, you are three times more likely to have people tell the truth, behave fairly, and serve a greater good. But if your actions and words don't match, if those are for cosmetic consumption only, what you've now done is institutionalized duplicity. You've now told people around here, we say one thing, but we do another. Mm -hmm. Well, they're not going to conclude, oh, you just need that for the value step, but everything else we have to, we have to, you know, actions and words match. No, what you said is for whatever discretion you choose, it's perfectly okay for your actions and your words not to align. When that's the case, now you've, increased your odds by a factor of three, that people will lie, lie, cheat, and serve their own interests first. So th this is important, honesty, not just personally, but also honesty because it has a, a direct correlation to business success. I, I, I can't F capitalize the D in direct enough, Marat. <clears throat> what, what we learned, and the whole first chapter of the book lays this out, is don't do, don't do this work as scandal avoidance, mm -hmm. do it. But if you look at every performance metric you would care about, your, your market share, your margins, your customer loyalty, um, your um, brand loyalty, um, your premium pricing, your employee engagement, your high high potential employee retention, on every metric, purpose driven companies that live and embody their purpose, that live by the values they claim, that are serving a greater good, outperform their competitors by enormous factors, you know, S&P stock ratings by 14%, um, uh, employee retention by 50%. I mean, they're just on every metric you would care about, ESG metrics, they're, it's, they're, they're, it's not even comparable. 
So do it for performance. Do it because you want to unleash the best in your people, because you want them bringing their best selves to work, doing the work they feel most proud of, and doing the best at it for your customers to get that performance. That's the reason to do it. So I, I love it. I mean, I get goosebumps just thinking about it. But tell me then a little bit more about the just do it. What? How, how do I know where we're starting from? What do I do to just do it? It sounds so easy, but it's obviously more complex. Otherwise, we wouldn't be getting the headlines of those who are perceived or actually being dishonest. Uh, well, that's it. We could have, we could have that, that rabbit hole. I think the media just loves telling us those headlines because it's clickbait for them. But I, the, the, mm -hmm. the good news is we actually found that there are far more companies doing honest doing honesty work than not. Mm -hmm. And the, this book is a book of heroes. This book is really about the exemplars we would want to follow and emulate. Okay, so give us one of those exemplars and share a story that brings well, the doing to life. Let me tell you what the three other three findings were, and then I'll tell you the okay. example. Uh, so be who you say you are. Accountability. So if your accountability systems are seen as fair, meaning the way you talk about my contribution uh, is equitable and dignified, meaning you understand that I am a reflection of the contribution I made to you. you <clears throat> You, you, most companies uh, in leftover from the 70s and 80s scaled sameness as if it's fairness because uh -huh. to neutralize their ancient performance, right? When we were all doing repeatable work, it made sense. But now my remit to you is my ideas, my creativity, my insight, my, my um, ideas. <clears throat> it's as personal and unique to me as I, as I am. So when you talk about my work, you are talking about me. You can't say mm -hmm. it's not. So no, if if there's dignity in that process, you're now four times more likely to have people tell the truth and behave fairly and serve a greater good. Transparency and governance. If when I walk into a meeting and this group of people is there to solve a problem or make a decision or do something important or advance a strategy, if I believe the data in the room is sound and, and being presented honestly, if it's a safe place for me to voice dissent, to share a different point of view, or if I'm expected to offer a contrary point of view, <clears throat> and that's how decisions are constructed, you're three and a half times more likely to have people lie, uh, tell the truth and behave fairly and serve a greater good. But if it's orchestrated theater, if I walk in and I know the decisions already been made, the forecast mm -hmm. looks embellished and we all know it, but no one's going to say anything. And I definitely don't think it's safe for me to offer an alternative point of view. Now you're three and a half times more likely to have people lie and cheat. And lastly, <clears throat> cross-functional relationships. Okay. Where the organization comes together at the seams where real value gets created, where the highest risk decisions get made, where your impact on the marketplace actually happens, sales and marketing, R&D and supply chain. <clears throat> if those seams are stitched and there's unity across those groups, there are is highly collaborative, um, trust-based relationships there, you are six times more likely to have people tell the truth and behave fairly. But if there are border wars, if those silos are entrenched, if, you, <clears throat> if it's about we versus they, and tribalism has taken over. Now you're six times well than have people lie and cheat because now I fragment, if I fragment the organization, I fragment the truth. The hardest part of these models, Mariah, is that they're cumulative. So if you're good at all four of those things, you have now increased your odds by a factor of 16 that you are gonna have a culture of people telling you the truth, behaving fairly and serving the purpose of your organization. But if you suck at all of them, you've now increased your odds by a factor of 16 that you're going to end up in one of those headlines in the New York Times that you never imagined being in. Okay, so remind us of the four domains again, and then give us the the one of the hero stories or heroine stories from the book. So the four domains again are 
be who you say you are. Yep. A dignity and accountability, transparency and governance, and unity, unity across seams. Okay, lovely. Now, so then sh- give us an example. Give us an inspiring story well, that... Let's talk about know. a mutual friend, Hubert Jolie. Okay, Hubert, yeah. Who, who's, a, who's a story in the book. Uh, his turnaround at Best Buy was remarkable, but the way he did it was by infusing purpose, right? So so on dimension number one, he way overachieved in making sure everybody could marry their purpose to the broader purpose and align their words and actions to it by simply being human, by simply being caring for customers, by treating people like they, they treat their grandmother. Mm-hmm. He invited everybody to bring their own story to the organization. He stitched the seams by making accountability much simpler there. They, they people, he walked into people who were being held accountable for 50 plus KPIs, <clears throat> impossible conditions. The way he transformed that organization was almost a, is a textbook case study for these four dimensions, but he specifically excelled on the one identity. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ed Townley at Cabot Creamery, a beautiful B Corp, Corp company in the United States, inherited a company that was so broken and divided that his first opening move as CEO was having to put people on his team in jail for, for fraud and corruption. He could have just fired them, but he mm-hmm. knew the it was to actually indict them. But the way he stitched the seams of a, you know, dairy cooperatives are often very uncooperative. They're very rife with conflict because you have the interests of the farmers and the interests of the manufacturers, and they're very difficult to align. And he worked tirelessly to make sure every bridge that needed to be built got built between the farmers and the retailers, between the manufacturers and the farmers, between marketing and sales. Um, At every place where there was a rift, he brought them together and unified them. Beautiful example. I love this because, again, I touch on this in Cultivate, the politics, silos and turf wars. But when you have ally relationships, when you have ally teams, it's about having each other's back and fostering the togetherness. So I was reading an article that you recently wrote about building high performing teams where you talk about the importance of having each other's backs and fostering that amongst the team, not just with you as the leader. How do you go about doing that? Well, it, it, part of what a leader has to learn to do is learn when not to make them reliant on you, right? If you're going to be, it's, if you're going to create a very hub and spoke model of leadership where all roads lead to you, you're, you're actually making your team weaker, um, which makes it very difficult to have cross-functional partnerships because everything has to go up and over. Mm-hmm. You want them to be very self-sufficient. You want them to be the fabric of your work where they don't need you where they're interdependence among each other. I mean, and the first question you have to ask yourself is, is, it, is this in fact a team? Just because they all report to you doesn't mean their work is interdependent. But if their work is truly interdependent, where they do have to rely on each other, then the complexity of the work has to be commensurate with the level of trust. Yeah. And if, if, if there is, it may not be that there's distrust, but if there's insufficient trust for the complexity of the work that they're doing, that means the default mechanism has to be you. And you're playing referee and air traffic control and spending your life doing all kinds of orchestrations you shouldn't have to do. I think you use the phrase, you need to amputate collusion and the back channels. And that was a great visual image for me. But interesting, in that same article, I had to pause and reread because you talk about the importance of finding ways to say, I love you. Now, if I overlay that with, to be honest, how many times have any of us maybe uttered those words in a romantic relationship with our fingers crossed of kind of maybe a little bit too soon? But the concept of saying I love you at work, that you have to admit is unusual. So 
translate that one for me into the importance of saying I love you at work? Well, I actually think leaders do it every day. I don't know that you have to say it with those words, but you still mm-hmm. have to say it with your actions. Um, I mean, if you think about great leadership and the act of caring for people, the act of sacrificing for other people, the act of making sure you bring out their best and invite their best work, that you, get, you create opportunities for them to shine and feel proud. You think about the things we do well for each other. If that doesn't define what, what true love is, I don't know what does. Um, and if you think about the place where we spend the vast majority of our waking hours being bereft of the thing most humans need most, which is love, that's tragic, right? If, our, if, if the places where we become our best selves, do our best work, live out our purpose, can't be places full of love, where, where are you going to go? It's not romantic love. That's the that, that's the what people have to remember. But it's it's a form of love where you're giving and receiving care. You're giving and receiving kindness. You're giving and receiving you know intellectual and emotional pleasure. You're giving and receiving you know g- generous kindness and and sacrifice to each other. Um, and if you can foster that, who's not going to want to come and do their best? Who's not going to want to have your back? Who's not going to want to come and make sure at all costs this team succeeds? The neuroscience has good clues to this, right? If you look at what happens in a, in a tribal situation, you know, we enter strange places and our amygdala goes on high alert. Yep. We are looking for the threat. We are looking for the sense of, can I trust these people? Uh, it, will, I, will my well-being be well handled in their care? Um, are, they gonna, are they out to get me? Are they going to hurt me in some way? But the minute... I get a belonging cue. The minute I get some signal from them, I'm accepted, I'm welcomed, um, I matter, uh, that I belong to them, not just belong with them. Um, my brain's, uh, that same mechanism in my brain switches to protection. It goes from, from warning to uh, close ranks. This is mm-hmm. my, my, my tribe, and so I have to protect it. There is some, some definite downsides to tribalism, yeah, but the upside of the kinds of a belonging, a sense of true camaraderie that you can create, brings my best to the table. And it's it's about being deliberate, thoughtful, and intentional in the moment because you want to build that sense of tribe. And we know from Gary Ridge and the and the impact he's had at WD Forty, the importance of that. But to your point, understanding the downsides and understanding when does your tribe become a clique, i.e., there are barriers to entry. So I'm also curious, you talked there about the the warning signals that we have around threat or the sense of belonging. To what extent has our current three by five, two-dimensional environment impacted some of the advice and thoughts? How do we do it when we're working in a distributed world versus in a 3D face-to-face world? Well, so I think a lot of people have assumed that um, working virtually has somehow broken down trust or or um, d- diminished intimacy among teams. Um, I-, I would argue that's probably not the case. I would argue that if there was diminished intimacy, it just revealed it. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, does it make it, does it require greater creativity? Does it require uh, more nuanced communication? Does it require different types of efforts? Absolutely. Um, but, you know, most of our work is distributed. Most of us don't work in a purely in-person cubicle farm anymore. Most of us work across globes, across continents, across departments. Um, and so how you create connective, connective tissue that establishes trust and mutuality and appropriate levels of intimacy for people um, has always been something required of us, right? Now I can't do it over um, 
uh, a physical lunch in the cafeteria, but I can still have lunch with somebody. Mm-hmm. We can both bring our meals here. Uh, I can see you. I can hear hear you. I can you know connect with you. Um, I can still ask about your family. I can still ask about how was the wedding this weekend. I can mm-hmm. still I can still say to you, how can I be helpful? Um, do you need me to take some load off your plate? Um, and now I actually have better clues because now I'm in your home. Now I see the pile of laundry behind your, you know, that hasn't been folded yet. I see the kids running around. I, I can get a better cue that you might need a break, right? So I've now actually got even you know, more interesting data to tell me how I can be a better colleague to you. And so if you thought before that your people's personal lives are not relevant to you, they're relevant now. So I love that. So for those listening who are going, okay, honesty, the benchmark, I thought I was doing it. I haven't stolen the silverware, therefore I have integrity, therefore I'm honest. But how do I actually get a true handle on where we are and where we can improve? Well, so first of all, let's start with the example you just gave. If you've said to yourself, um, uh, uh, I didn't do something dishonest because somebody did something worse. Ooh, yeah. Uh, you're, you're kidding yourself, right? The, the road, the, the entrance to every slippery slope is engraved with the words, at least I'm not as bad as. Okay. So be careful what you tell yourself. But here's a really simple example. Go take that mission statement, that purpose statement, those values off the wall. In your next team meeting, put them on the table and say, where are we not living up to these? Where am I not living up to these? On what days could you follow me around with a video camera and take me and use it for a training program for these? And on what days could you never do that? And have an honest conversation about it. Mm-hmm. Find out, uh, if you have to do it anonymously, fine. Do people come to your meetings assuming that the game is rigged? Uh, here, here's a litmus test as a leader. If you don't have somebody coming into your office at least two or three times a week telling you something that's uncomfortable for you to hear, be very confident your leadership sucks. Okay. Because there are things happening that should make you uncomfortable. And if they're not telling you, there's a reason for it. It's not random that they're withholding it from you. Um, you haven't earned their trust to make sure they, w- they should tell you. So you have to figure out why that is. Um, who is your they? Who is the, the, the department with whom you have to cooperate that when you say their word, their name, people roll their eyes? It's, oh, them. Mm-hmm. Ask yourself, whose them are you? And how could you make that they part of your we? What conversation would have to happen for you to say, how can I be a better colleague to you? Our partnership is fully strained. We've known that for for a long time. How can we bring them together and say, how can we do better? You can do practical things across all four of those dimensions to get a little better. That was the great thing about the the statistical models. It wasn't all or nothing. You can improve cross-border collaboration by 20% and get 10% more honesty. Right? So you can actually move the needle on all of these. And if you come to the website on tobehonest.net, we have uh, a downloadable assessment called How Honest Is My Team? Here's one I created earlier. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So you can, you, can, you, can, you can step back and ask yourself, and it will score for you, mm-hmm. uh, where, where does your team stack up with respect to the honesty they're bringing to your table? And uh, what I like about this is it's something that we need to continually nurture and pay attention to, because to your point, you said earlier, it's a slippery slope. 
And it's the small degradations that suddenly become the chasms and then end up as the headlines. So remaining vigilant isn't that we distrust people or ourselves, it's that we care and that we are being as your be yourselves, but being authentic around this is important and this is how we role model it. So, Ron, you talked there about, uh, to be honest, and the website. So say that again, and where else can people learn more about the work that you and your team are doing? So come to visit us at Navalent, N-A-V-A-L-E-N-T dot com. Um, and we've got a bunch of great ebooks you can download. We've got articles, books, videos, all kinds of great resources for you. If you want to learn more about the book, you can come to tobehonest.net. Uh, and at, at tobehonest.net slash assessment, you can find the assessment tool. Um, please follow me on LinkedIn and Twitter and stay in touch. Okay. Well, Ron, I have thoroughly enjoyed our conversation today. I'll make sure all that information is in the show notes. What final words do you have for us as we close out this episode? Honestly, it's not a, it's not a character trait. It, contrary to popular thinking, it's not because you have some special DNA. Honesty is a muscle. You have to cultivate it. To be good at it, you have to work at it every day. Um, it's not something you either have or don't. And if you want to be seen as honest, if you want a reputation for someone people can rely on, you have to work at it every day. Ron, thank you. Morag, a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining Morag today. If you enjoyed the show, please like and subscribe so you don't miss a thing. If you learned something worth sharing, share it. Cultivate your relationships today when you don't need anything before you need something. Be sure to follow Sky Team and Morag on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you have any ideas about topics we should tackle, interviews we should do, or if you yourself would like to be on the show, drop us a line at info at skyteam.com. That's S-K-Y-E team.com. Thanks again for joining us today. And remember, business is personal and relationships matter. We are your allies.